Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I get to talk to one of the trainers who taught me my basics. My first ever hands-on experience with marine mammals was at Blair Drummond Safari Park under the guidance of sea lion trainer, Sam Clark. Welcome, Sam. Hi, nice to see you again. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've actually, you know, sat down and had a conversation, but uh, go ahead and introduce yourself for everyone who's listening. Okay, so my name's Sam. I am now the manager of Calder Glen Zoo. But as Hazel has quite rightly said, years ago, I started off my career with animals as a sea lion trainer at Blair Drummond Safari Park. Let's not mention um, how many years ago it was that we actually worked I, together, Do you know what? I couldn't, even, <laughs> I couldn't even tell you. I think it's probably well over 14 years now, 13 e years. Easily, easily. Yeah. I think I was like 18 when I started. Yeah, I, I think. think it's, I've probably been in the zoo world for about 15 years in total now. Yeah. So yeah a lifetime was, ago yeah I have such great memories from that though like it was my first ever like I was a volunteer so I came mm -hmm. one day a week um when I was at uni and I just remember like absolute shenanigans with you and Alex and like <laughs> you guys getting me to I wrote about it in my book but getting me to stand on the sea lion stands or you guys stood on the sea lion stands with buckets and I had to throw fish into the buckets right. because yeah. my aim was yep. so bad <laughs> Like I mean, it's like coordination. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. think it helped because you know, I, I didn't get any better. I'll tell you that. Like working with dolphins, working with whales, my aim and my hand-eye coordination was still terrible. Well, that's but... okay. They're a bigger target, so you've got more to aim at there. You would think. You well, maybe think. not actually. Yeah. You would hmm. think, but um, somehow <laughs> aiming Caitlin at a whale's gaping mouth, uh, some of them do still uh, escape. But, yes. <laughs> but yeah, so you started off tell everyone how you got started um in the zoo world okay so um i actually went to university in scotland i went to stirling university and i ended up graduating in biology and ecology which was great and my total final goal would be to go on and work in in situ conservation um very very quickly realized that that's a little bit more of a dream than a reality for a lot of people so i actually went back down south and ended up working in a project called Connect, which was getting young offenders out of prison and into work, which I really enjoyed. But unfortunately, um, the project was shut down, the funding was cut for it. So I ended up back in Scotland, um, working with TVs and installing TVs into hotels, which was a part-time job, but it was just something to bring money in. Yeah. Whilst doing that, I did see an advert in the local newspaper for sea lion staff at Blair Drum and Safari Park. So, I thought, well, that sounds like quite fun for a, for a summer job, better than putting TVs into hotels. <laughs> so I actually applied for that job. Um, I did have some experience volunteering at safari parks down south when I was at uni. And luckily enough, I was chosen and taken on in that role. Initially as a seasonal role, um, and then the seasonal role turned into a full-time role, and then a year turned into a few years, and then a few years turned into, as we were saying, Hazel, probably nearly 15 years in the zoo. A career. now. Not yeah. all at Blair Drummond's. I've moved on and I'm very happy where I am now in a different role. But yeah, that was the beginning of it. Yeah. You know, from one newspaper ad, you you got a whole career. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was a very strange time back then when that probably just about could still happen. And I don't think it would now, to be honest. I mean, I don't really see it being advertised in a newspaper, <laughs> not in like no, a not national all, no. newspaper like that. <laughs> um, but what was it like going in, you know, from such a different job? to what you had been working mm -hmm. in? Was it just like a breath of fresh air or was it really like, oh my God, I'm super passionate about this. I really want to stick at it. I think it was very different. Um, I think, I mean, as I say, I had been in zoos um, as a volunteer, but coming into yeah. that culture and that kind of environment as somebody who's being paid, it is a very, very big difference. I think what a lot of people might find, even the zoos you volunteer in, as soon as you're taken on as a paid member of staff, 
the dynamic changes, the whole atmosphere changes, not always for the worst, but you suddenly realize you're tied into it mm -hmm. and you can't just go, oh, no, I can't come in today or no, I don't want to do that day's volunteering. So um, as you'll be aware yourself, Hazel, it's, it's a very particular culture. It's quite a unique blend of agriculture, animal science. Um, you know, you work with people from lots of different backgrounds, a lot of different demographics, which is very good. But yeah, I think if you were 18, I'd have been 24, 23, 24. Um, so going into it at that age is like you saying that now, a I'm like, oh my God, just, shock. like you saying that I, I'm just blown away that you were like 24 because I, I don't know, yeah, you just seem so. so mature. And so like when I think back on my own memories now, you were like so sure of yourself <laughs> and like so genuinely you you had so much natural talent like you were an excellent trainer and that's I that's very that, kind of you to say that I do say that I, now looking I, back um I mean I thought you were amazing at the time as well but I don't know you just <laughs> seemed so mature and I'm like now I'm just like you were only 24 that's insane but I it's really all relevant like, though isn't it I suppose yeah. but yeah. yeah yeah very true um no I hadn't got a clue what I was doing I was winging it half the time so <laughs> aren't we all? But I like what you yes. said about um, culture and culture being different, because I feel like, especially zoos in the UK, or working with marine mammals in the UK, it's a very, very different atmosphere to working with marine mammals in, say, the United States, um, or yes. even some yeah. of the facilities I've worked at, you know, I always do the wetsuit versus khakis kind of thing. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. But I feel like at Blair Dumander, at any zoo, you know, I think, or Safari Park in the UK, even if you're working with sea lions or marine mammals, you're still like keeper and less yes. trainer yeah. or you're viewed as keeper. What, yeah. what do you think contributes to that kind of environment or that kind of mentality in the UK versus anywhere else? Oh, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I think there's probably a few factors that go into that. And I'd probably say one of the underlying factors if that makes sense is literal practicality so Blair Drummond is a fairly large institution but its marine mammal department is only sea lions and there's only a few members of staff within that so you, you literally don't have the kind of um, freedom to specialize as much as some of the bigger American parks would or some of the parks in Europe um, so you can't literally you can't afford or have the luxury to be a trader you do need to go in and clean you need to chop food you need to do the shows you need to do all the veterinary stuff as well um so i think some of it probably originally um probably stems from actually not having the same level of facility that america's got or the same investment or the same level of money you can throw at things i also and you guys also you... had to be carpenters like i remember yeah, you yeah, and alex definitely. like remaking yeah. sea lion stands like in well the absolutely winter. i mean alex is alex is the the creative one i used to smash stuff up and get rid of old stuff so he was the one that could put <laughs> stuff together he was the creator i was just the destroyer when it came to that but yeah you, you really do have to kind of um you have to be a jack of all trades and yeah. i think that's very very true for most positions I actually wonder, you'd probably know more than me, and maybe some of the people listening would definitely know, um, but I wonder whether there's a cultural element in America as well, where trainers are seen as a separate entity. Um, I would hazard a guess that a lot of the trainers actually go into it almost from an entertainment background as much as an animal background, because they're the public face of what's going on. Um, so right from the start, there's almost a different focus and emphasis on recruitment and who you're recruiting than probably yeah. the UK, I think probably. Yeah, I actually, I, I actually really agree with that. Um, and it's something that's been mentioned to me when I've interviewed for zoo positions after leaving the Wales. And I remember getting yeah. asked the question, like, how would you feel about like not being in front of an audience and not, I think they even <laughs> used the phrase, like not getting the applause. I'm like, right, well, you okay. can, st you can still clap for me when I'm shoveling shit. Like I'm, That's a very I'm, good answer. I'm still yeah. going to be fantastic wheeling a wheelbarrow full of elephant dung. Like, yeah, yeah. You can give me applause for that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I understand what you mean. A lot of trainers that work in very theatrical roles, you know, I will use myself as an example, working shows with Killer Rails. I did musical theater. I definitely yeah. do like the theatrical side. Um, but, you know, there's still a lot of training roles who focus a lot more on research or even conservation or rescue yeah, rehab yeah. um but yeah i think for a lot of um uk zoos there's a lot more crossover like you said there's smaller departments yes, you know you've got yeah. to kind of make do and mend 
a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But you guys did still get an awful lot of, you know, training in with the sea lions. So what was it like learning kind of not necessarily just on the job? Because I know you did a prior experience, but what was it like adapting to that environment and learning to train um, the sea lions? I think it was great. Um, I think it's probably done a lot for me in terms of bedding down what I know as something I find interesting in my in my career going forward from there. Um, I think probably retrospectively, if that makes sense, looking at the sea lions, it was such a specialist technique and such a specialist way of training. I think it probably has more in common with kind of full-time dog training and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Whereas I think a lot of the species that I've then gone on to train or work with in any capacity, to be honest, the training actually comes into it as more of a practical benefit if you can. Whereas I think the whole yeah. focus on the sea lines was that is their entire existence, their enrichment is training. Obviously, yeah. the shows and the displays. Um, what's the right phrase? I'm trying to put this very carefully. Um, oh, the, you don't have to be shows careful. and the displays. Well, I, I'd, I'd like to. I don't like to offend <laughs> people. But the shows and the displays obviously were a, a significant proportion of what those animals were there for. Yeah. Um, whereas I think sometimes the other species I've gone on to work with, training is beneficial for them, but it's not a public forward-facing thing yeah like it's not sense. it's not an expectation like I think it's not you... an expectation no and yeah. I think it's probably also not utilized and implemented in the same way if that makes sense oh definitely yeah. you know I think for me I think training is hugely beneficial I think like mm-hmm. you said it's super enriching for the animals I think you know if you can train, you can also do a lot of, you know, I have a lot of experience with cognitive research or watching animals yeah, do yeah. a lot of um, things like that. What's your opinion of it? Do you think that training should be used a little bit more with other species? Um, I think it's very dependent on the species. I think as much as uh, I, I remember years ago, one of the conversations me and you had was that the phrase marine mammal, I think gets used to describe anything from an otter through to an orca. And mm-hmm. I think very much in that kind of blanket terminology, is training beneficial, is it not? It's very much dependent on the species that you're implementing it on and also the, the, the circumstances that species finds itself in at that time. I think medical training and husbandry training always should have a, like a part to play in zoos. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't because then staff pressures and what we were talking about before about other you know commitments that staff have creep in. Um, I think display training is great if it's done correctly. And Mm -hmm. all I would probably put as a caveat on that is I think that we need to be constantly self-assessing and constantly, you know, reassessing what we find suitable and what conditions result from from that. I think even since me and you worked together, Hazel, probably stuff's changed a hell of a lot in the last 10, 15 years. And it will continue to change. Yeah. It will continue to be a fluid situation when it comes to that. I'm trying to be very diplomatic. Um, you're you're succeeding. But, well, hopefully. <laughs> um, but yeah. you know, the, the other thing I would say, just as a as a side to that as well, is um, everybody's got different opinions. But everybody needs to be open to sit down and listen to people's opinions, even if you don't agree with them. Because I mean, at the end of the day, the, the the whole animal world needs to learn from each other when it comes to zookeeping. I think. Yeah, I love that, and you know, I'm the first person who will stand up for massively theatrical shows because I adore yes. them. Yeah. I love yeah. them. Like, give me the music, the dr- the drama, give me the storylines, give me impressive waterwork. But yeah. I also yeah. agree that, you know, you need to be looking out, number one, for animal welfare. You know, is what we're doing ethical? Is what we're doing mm-hmm. moral? You know, are we doing the right thing by our animals? And I yeah. agree like you said, you should look at the different species and see what's appropriate for each species, what's naturalistic for each species. Uh, I think arguably also at an individual mm-hmm. level, each animal, you know, what are they Very showing? Much, actually, yeah. What are they showing that they're enjoying? Do they show yeah, an, aver- yeah. an aversion to this training? What do you think about that? Do you think it's realistic to ever be able to think like that with training? I think it is. No, I, I, I don't think that's unrealistic. I think again, probably what it boils down to is people taking the time and actually putting the effort into assessing individual animals' preferences and needs. Yes. And yeah, we've, we've got the time constraints and we've got the energy and staffing constraints with that. We also, and I, I know it firsthand, we have people who go into a training role with very, very entrenched opinions. 
and try to impose those opinions of training on other trainers but also Mm -hmm. those methods of training on animals that maybe necessarily don't have a background with that or aren't necessarily suitable for that for for age for species even Um, so I think probably taking a step back and looking at training objectively rather than subjectively would be massively beneficial for a lot of places I think probably as you'll know yourself as well Hazel like the other thing that happens is you go into somewhere and somebody say we do it this way and then you question why and they'll say well we've always done it that way yeah Um, and there's no wiggle room no there's no wiggle room and I get that you know you could go in and you could upset the apple cart and say look you're doing it all wrong but if if training is a science and it is because it's animal behavior science is built on you know theories of what works and at the end of the day any scientist shouldn't be afraid to have their theory discredited by a new theory that comes through and proves that actually stuff isn't quite as we thought it's not a personal attack it's not a reflection on them it's actually you know you've you've done your part you've scored your goal but the substitutions come on now and the game carries on and it goes in a different direction but unfortunately we all know there's people in the zoo world not just in animal training but it seems to be especially in animal training who hold very very entrenched views of what's right and wrong um i think that can be slightly problematic if i'm being honest you've put that perfectly and and so concisely (laughs) and i think it's going to resonate with a lot of listeners you know i do have a lot of listeners who who are current trainers and you know it's something that's prevalent the world over you know i've heard it be said from almost every facility you know you know there's either just one trainer or a manager or a supervisor who has an opinion of how things should be done and you know their staff are not able to and training is so it's such a personal thing everyone trains differently like we said every animal is different so how can you expect everyone to go in with the same set of rules and it to work for everyone um yeah and secondly there should be no room for ego in training you leave your you leave your ego at the door like yeah you got to go in humble because you could go in with a perfectly curated 10-step training plan and very quickly be like huh this isn't going to work. Let's throw Definitely. this out. Does yeah. anyone else and have an idea? <laughs> absolutely. And there's ob- there's like absolutely um, practical reasoning behind that, that actually an ego doesn't do any good for your fellow trainers if you're the center of attention all the time. But actually an animal doesn't care if you've got an ego or not. If you're focused on your own persona at the detriment to the fact an animal's not acting quite as you want it to be and... Um, then something bad happens, that's a safety issue, um, especially with some of the species you've worked with, but even down to the sea lions or even uh, even down to marmosets that I've worked with, you know, I mean, if if you're not on the ball and if you're not watching, you know how quickly things can go, like, south. Yeah, if, and if I'm, I'm also... I'm being I'm, no, you're completely right. And I'm so glad, actually, that my first ever hands-on experience was with sea lions, And I honestly have a lot to thank you and Alex for in teaching me things like body positioning and watching animals and safety distances. Well, you're welcome, but it is, it's it's absolutely imperative. It really is. Um, Yeah. And I took that with me through my entire career and, you know, it, it came in very useful. (laughs) I will tell you that much. (laughs) Good. Um, Glad to hear it. Yeah. But talking about safety there in different types of species, you Mm -hmm. did move on from working with sea lions to working with big cats. I Um, did, yes. So tell us a little bit about what that transition was like. Well, that was quite a sudden transition and it was more circumstantial than anything. Um, But as you know, large carnivores is my like absolute field. Um, It's what I've always kind of done or wanted to do you know that would be the pinnacle um so working with the tigers especially was probably some of the best keeper experiences i've had for the time i worked with them in terms of you know time with the animals and what we what we achieved i'm very very proud and i'm very kind of happy about how that turned out um what i would say is talk about a culture shock and a culture difference from sea lions um, that is a 180 opposite direction of management of those animals, and it has to be. So um, the the closest I'll get to being political, I think, is when people, when I see people acting with big cats free contact, like they do with sea lions, 
well, you know how I get about it. I, I have very strong opinions oh, no, we about had, that shouldn't, we had a shouldn't be done. So, yeah, we yeah. had a we had a big discussion about it, and I'd love to talk a little bit about it. Um, I went to Australia Zoo, uh, yeah. and I for the first time in my life, I watched tigers being worked with like marine mammals. You know, free contact using reinforcement. You know, doing a show, and honestly, I from obviously I'm naive and maybe a bit ignorant about big cats. I, I, that is not my field of expertise whatsoever, but just watching it, I felt like I understood it and I, I really liked it. I was like, Oh my God, is this how okay. it should be done? Yeah. But you know, like we said, leave your ego at the door. I know nothing about working with big cats. Um, I, and I, I remember messaging yeah. you and you were like, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it should be done. And I was like, okay, why? <laughs> yeah. Um, again, like I'm, I'm trying not to be too entrenched because it would completely contradict what I said 20 minutes ago about everybody needing to learn from each other and not ruling out that. And I stand by that. Um, what I would say is I've yet to be convinced by any argument um, that that is in any way a better system. Now, if you take out the ego and you take out the fact that a lot of the times, in my mind, those animals are put in a situation that they find stressful with a mm. lot of physical and audio stimulus that species of that nature can find stressful mm -hmm. um i think if you just take it strip it right the way back to the facts about what we talked about in terms of positioning and when things go wrong how yeah. quickly that can go wrong um you're dealing with an animal that is evolved and designed to kill you or another animal now mm -hmm. it doesn't need to mean to you see the way lions wallop each other on documentaries or if you're on safari and you see a lion having oh, an even even killer whales like we would constantly Absolutely. just be careful around their flukes even if you yes, were just exactly. doing a, a yeah. blood layout a blood yeah. position like you have to have your hands on their flukes and you're like if they suddenly kick out of this could mm -hmm. you get a broken arm absolutely you could because yeah, they're absolutely. enormous yeah yeah um i think that's if you've kind of summed up what i was about to say is that actually <laughs> if something does go no 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 <laughs> um what, what i was going to say is if something does go wrong then the negative results can be fatal very mm -hmm. quickly. Um, I'm not saying that that's the case all the time. And I think a lot of the people that work big cats free contact constantly will tell you, yeah, well, we've never had a, we've never had an issue. My answer to that would be, I can guarantee if you're in protected contact, you will never have an issue. You can't guarantee to me in free contact that that will always be the case. Now, yeah. I, I, I'm not saying that I know what they do inside out, but I have spent time around them. I, you know, I mean, I've also been lucky enough to spend a fair amount of time around large carnivals in the wild on two continents, on several countries. So I know how they act. Um, to me, it's not something I would want to put myself or anybody that I cared about in that position. Mm -hmm. But that is just me. And, you know, I don't want to offend anybody who's listening. Um, I just, you know, that that's that's my view on it. And no, I don't. I honestly, I don't think you need to be worried about offending anyone. You know, you you do have a lot of experience with big cats, and like you said, everyone's opinion can be shared. You know, yeah, and yeah. and you're just giving an ed, a well educated um, opinion. And yeah, I mean, if anyone wants to debate the pros and cons, like absolutely, yeah, yeah. open up the debate. There, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, for you, is it more of a benefits outweighing the risks or risks outweighing the benefits type situation yeah I, th I think probably again there's probably several factors to this so for me i've yet to see anything that can't be done with good protected contact training that can be done free contact mm -hmm. you know i think a lot of the free contact people early on said well we we know our animals and we can interact and do things that you'd never be able to do well i i, I dispute that you know, with a proper training program, you can do anything free contact. We used to train the sea lions when you were there to present flippers for x-rays, protected contact through and a barrier. Ultrasound, ultrasound and ultrasound And ultrasound. Well. You know, I've taken a blood draw from a, a tiger's tail, protected contact, sorry, with no anesthetic going into that animal. Um, so the, there are stuff you can do. I think the other thing that affects and shapes my opinion partly on this is when you, you start getting into, into the realms of tiger walking holidays in South mm. Africa that feed into the canned hunting industry mm -hmm. or tiger temple, sorry, mm -hmm. lion walking holidays or, or tiger temple where, where, you, where you actually scratch the surface of this idealistic existence mm -hmm. and you've got mass animal crime and abuse and exploitation going on. Well, um, I mean, it's a different King subject, was... so I won't. No, yeah. I mean, it's still very relevant. Like Tigerkin was one of the biggest Netflix documentaries of the last couple of years, you know, and I do understand how, you know, 
it could be a slippery slope, shall we say, going from, you know, you see it everywhere, even with marine mammals, you know, you've got fantastically well-managed facilities that have excellent welfare and do so much research and conservation work. And then you also have facilities who, you know, are doing the complete opposite. Uh, And it is very difficult, you know, if you don't have the same kind yes. of standards everywhere. I think I think that's precisely it. I think, I mean, obviously at this point, I should probably point out in no way am I likening Australia Zoo to lion. Oh, of course not. Me or, either. You know, no, me okay. Either. So I think that's important to say, but I think what it does cause is a blurring of the lines between yeah. what the public finds acceptable, acceptable and what the public think is a, is a legitimate facility and one which is actually very exploitative and is based around a tourism industry that doesn't mm-hmm. care about the animals it represents. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with that. And again, it comes back to the, we should, I feel like as trainers or anyone working with animals, we should constantly be questioning our ethics and yeah. say, you know, yeah. just because we can do this, does it mean that we should, or exactly. just, yeah. just because this is how it's always been done. Does it mean we should continue to work like this? And for anyone out there listening, yeah, I'm talking about waterworks. You know, if you have an animal who, sh- who, clearly finds waterwork aversive does not like sharing its space with with the trainer should you continue to ask waterwork behaviors with that animal just because it's expected or a show must go on type mentality or can you take the initiative you know if the facility is able to say hey this animal's not well suited to this type of training let's you know do more cognitive research because they find that super reinforcing like let's focus on that because that's really enriching Mm -hmm. But if we go back to your time working with the Tigers, tell me a little yes. bit about what it was like. Because you said that you achieved, or you were happy with what you achieved in the time that you were there. So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so I was really lucky to work with a good team. And um, we really actually really improved natural behavior to the point where the Tigers were searching, they were exploring territory, their their enclosure, different feeding methods, enrichment through different feeding. So putting food on, um tensile strength thing so they had to tug it off or getting them to to climb which you know there's this myth that tigers don't climb sorry hazel (laughs) (laughs) sam is unfortunately just getting over uh covid so uh yeah i think he's um having a little bit of an issue here drink some water drink some water i haven't got any but it's just a tickly throat it's fine it's okay um so i was saying yeah sorry so um actually yeah getting the tigers exploring you know different types of enrichment scent enrichment um moving things around in the enclosures, actually getting them acting naturally, not sitting around asleep, which again is a public misconception that tigers do constantly. Um, you know, that was really good. Um, and then- I would love to fact... I would love to, to make a point there um, about, yeah, you, you go to a zoo and you see a big cat sleeping and the majority of the public are like, oh, it's normal. Oh, it's nice. Oh, it's peaceful. Yeah. If- people the general public are walking around a killer whale enclosure or a dolphin enclosure and they see the animals resting or sleeping which is basically just being immobile at the surface immediately their perception is something is wrong wrong. why is this animal not sleeping why is this animal not swimming yeah and like like you're saying you know it's public perception it's public image it's what they expect to see do you think that's really interesting do you think that because i i have the maybe again it's biased opinion that enrichment naturalistic enrichment is slightly easier to implement with terrestrial animals as opposed to marine mammals I always think it's a little Mm. bit harder or you need to be a little bit more creative what's your opinion about that I think you're probably spot on I think I mean terrestrial animals are more accessible for a start so a naturalistic you know I don't know field of boulders 20 feet below the surface isn't going to be very easy for you to recreate um the, through the fact we need to breathe which means we need to come to the surface <laughs> um, but no i think that's I, I wouldn't argue with that at all no i think in some ways that would possibly what i'd say is feed into the suitability of enclosures or the not suitability of some enclosures mm-hmm. um but yeah i i think when you're with marine mammals the the actual what's the right phrase the actual kind of day in day out challenges that you'd face with those animals is very very different to even big cats i would say yeah Mm -hmm. um the 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 one thing big cats are easy to enrich you just have to make sure they're not there when you do it and then let them out (laughs) so that kind of that kind of forces you into into the natural enrichment route anyway 
um, because they can't be there whilst you're setting up. But then actually, we achieved, you know, you know, up, stuff up trees, stuff in bushes. It doesn't always need to be food. We used to save the blood from the meat. We used to cut up and leave the blood trail. So on days where they weren't being fed, they at least followed a smell. And in my mind, that was akin to tracking an animal but not being successful in its hunt, which is very natural in the wild. Um, it was good. It was really, it was quite enriching for, for me and for us as well, yeah. I think. So, yeah. I think that's but, also yeah, really right. creative. I think that's really creative as well. Um, you said on days that they weren't being fed, you were still able to mm -hmm. use blood trails, example, um, yeah, yes, to enrich yeah. them. Explain for my listeners a little bit who maybe don't understand the concept of starve days. Okay. So it is a, it's a subject that still causes some um, <laughs> disagreement in the yeah. zoo world. Um, but the easiest way to describe a starve day or a fast day would be that if you look at a species of animal that only eats every seven to 10 days or every five to seven days, there's, why would you feed them every day in captivity? Um, they're not designed, their physiology isn't designed to eat small amounts every day. They catch something fairly large, they gorge on it, they they sit and digest it for a few days and then they'd hunt again. Um, so the, the methodology behind that is actually to replicate that in captivity. So you wouldn't feed an animal every day that in the wild wouldn't eat every day yeah it, i think you, in a nutshell yeah yeah and it, it does make sense do you did you see benefits from doing starve days yes i i'd say there's less stereotypical behavior completely okay. because um i think a lot of animals probably not just large carnivores but i mean anybody who's been in a zoo will see any species of animal standing anticipating a feed whether that's an orca down to a meerkat you see it everywhere that they know what time the food's coming they know what time you know feeding time is so you start getting this anticipatory behavior creeping in mm -hmm. and starved days it doesn't need to be that the same days are always starved days so one day you could feed an animal two days in a row but a smaller amount and then leave it for four or five days or you could feed an animal a larger feed one day and then give it four or five days and feed it small feed and then another day in a large feed so you actually you're cutting out all that anticipatory behavior so I th i'd say the biggest advantage i've seen is probably in terms of behavioral stuff there has been some evidence done and for the life of me i can't remember who who published it but veterinary evidence in terms of replicating that actually helps physiology and helps body their, condition yeah their, their gastrointestinal health i yes. can i can imagine probably benefits <clears throat> from it yeah um but i do like the fact it's very similar to what we do with marine mammals is just keep a very variable schedule um yeah. you know to some extent we can't do that so much with regards to show times or presentations sure. yeah um, usually yeah. they are yeah. quite fixed but um for instance what we did with the whales at marine land was we just had seven or eight buckets for the day and it was up to yeah. us yeah. when when we fed them so you know sometimes yeah. we would come in at nine o'clock and we would give a whole bucket and sometimes we would come in and we wouldn't start a session until 9 30 and we'd just give a quarter of a bucket and then we would yeah. do a little bit more so and we saw the same thing, you know, the whales at Marineland never showed anticipatory behavior unless, you know, a trainer was standing there with a bucket and the whales were exactly. like, yeah. something's <clears throat> about to happen. <laughs> and um, isn't that, doesn't that kind of show the, the potential power and influence on behavior of training and why it should be done correctly? Absolutely. It's really interesting to kind of like strip it down to that level. And mm -hmm. actually as much as training is beneficial, like bad training can be you know you know really you know damaging as well, well i mean everything influences your animal's behavior and yeah, not all yeah. behavior is good behavior and not all behavior is good for welfare you know that's something that's that's very very well known yeah um yeah. and you see that you know in it's not so much in the modern day i would say with marine mammals but definitely you know 30 40 years ago if you were doing you know, very continuous reinforcement. If you were, you know, feeding the same thing after every yep. behavior, you know, say after every behavior, your dolphin gets a herring, they're, they're not really going to care about what you're doing. No, Whereas that's, that's a really interesting. Way, what, yeah, we would, yeah. what we would do um, with the whales was okay for one correct behavior, you get a bridge, but you don't necessarily get that much reinforcement bridge in itself is reinforcing we're going to keep going then you might get ice cubes then you might get some fish then you might get a rub down you know so we were constantly yeah, yeah. trying to change what we were reinforcing with 
but I did have a question about um on a starve day did mm-hmm. you still do any training um less so actually yeah because the training really did rely on a little bit of we used to cut up horse meat and put it on a mm-hmm like a, a stick and feed it mm-hmm. through the bars. Mm-hmm. Um, so really with the tigers, their major kind of like, their, their major kind of rewards and reinforcement was was a food item. Yeah. Um, they would sometimes come up and start, but once they realized they're not getting anything off a stick, they kind of grumble mm. at you and walk away with the tail lashing. And it, it didn't really, it doesn't work that well with them, I don't think, um, okay. as probably some other species. Do you think that relationship plays a part in that? Or do you think it really is the temperament of the species? Relationship between the keeper and the animal? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I think there's probably a lot of it that is species specific. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I've worked with carnivores that have undoubtedly had different, oh, I hate the words, I hate the way of saying it, but personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, so behavior and individual reaction to keepers would vary definitely. Definitely. But then mm-hmm. the other thing is, I think age has a big effect with big cats as well. Okay. How so? I think the more elderly the animal, the probably less responsive they are in general, I think. Okay. That's interesting. Which maybe isn't the same as cetaceans and other animals, actually. No. I mean, I remember hearing <laughs> stories of um, Freya, the matriarch uh, mm-hmm. at Marineland. And when she was getting a little bit older, they were expecting her to kind of like slow down a little bit. Um, and she would just get really annoyed if she wasn't allowed to start the show right okay and she would like start being like can you please let me out like let's let's go like I'm ready for this um you know there's there's also a big um debate mostly with um, anti-captivity activists who always talk about retiring our animals or letting them retire like why are you still doing shows with an animal that's like 50 years old and it's yeah, like, well, yeah. as long as the animal shows behaviorally that they want to, it would be negative yeah. to not let them do it. You know, if we're just saying stay there and do quote unquote. Well, you're, I mean, you're absolutely removing a large area of enrichment from their life, yeah. which is actually, you know, helping them stimulate their brain and problem solving and puzzle solving. Mm-hmm. Um regardless of the species I mean that yeah I would argue that's probably the same across the board that an animal will stop interacting when it wants to and Um, also if they're if they're not physically capable of doing a behavior that we ask they will not do it you know we've seen um for instance with whales who refuse behaviors if they do it strangely you know you'll send a a breaching behavior for example and they refuse it you'll be like hmm maybe you'll send something else like a belly flop they refuse that okay. too yeah. that's yeah. when we would start asking the questions like are they sore like do did anyone yeah. see okay. any like rough play this morning or even any aggression like if that's the case you could be like oh maybe they're a little bit tender in those areas and that's why they don't want to do those high aerial behaviors and then we would not continue asking those behaviors mm-hmm. you know they would just do different sessions they yeah. would do lots yeah. of like relates lots of rub downs lots of play um, and we would keep them off of aerials for like the next three or four days until they were fully yield. And it's some it's something that somebody looking at that animal and going, that shouldn't be doing that, will not ever know until they understand the situation fully. Absolutely. And the reasoning behind why people do training and stuff. So yeah. no, I completely get that. Yeah, I really do. I think it's also, you know, I've been asked to comment on a lot of different behaviors, specifically with marine mammals. You know, I'll get sent videos of like, is this true? Is this really what's happening? And I'm always yeah, like, yeah. well, I can offer an opinion, but I can't ever say for definite because I wasn't there. Like, I don't know that okay, animal. Yeah. I don't know what's going on in that area. I don't know what happened just before. You know, so many different things can influence animals' behavior. And behavior in one animal can mean one thing, and behavior in another animal can sometimes yeah. mean something completely different. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like something I, I is, completely yeah I completely get what you're on about yeah yeah and it's, something as simple as like a, a tail lob like a tail slap uh, I know animals that that's a precursor to aggression that's really they're really mm-hmm. frustrated they're not they're maybe having an argument with another animal in the pool and yeah. a completely different animal it's excitement it's either okay, like yeah. oh we've just finished a great session that was fantastic or you know the same behavior can mean something completely different yeah yeah 
I, th I think that's an argument in itself for spending as much time as you can with those animals. Yes. And actually, you know, learning day in, day out, the, the mm -hmm. individual responses that that animal will give. That's absolutely. that's absolutely like imperative, I'd say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But for yeah. you going from marine mammals to terrestrials, what do you think is the biggest crossover or what kind of skills do you think are the most important mm. to take over with you? Another good question, but more difficult to answer, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I'd probably say, you know, your day in, day out husbandry and um, animal care skills um, mm. will never be redundant. And in some ways, learning with the sea lions made it easier to, to get hands on and get, you know, how how you put a, a needle into an animal how you check in a mouth you know it, it was actually looking back on it it was uh, it's really spoiling to go into that environment and not have to think about that because mm -hmm. all we did is give a signal for an open mouth and the sea lions would open their mouth and you can mm -hmm. check their teeth so then when you're grabbing species and opening their mouth and trying to look in as they're struggling or you know in, in the other extreme with the big cats you can't really look into their mouth if unless they're, they're right in front of you and if you do mm -hmm. need to that involves a knockdown and an anesthetic yeah. um i'd say probably the day-to-day -day husbandry that i got familiar with in terms of what i'm looking at i found the biggest help in crossover to other species i think um there's other things i mean going slightly left field there's stuff like presentation skills which i have used i don't want to but i have used <laughs> going you know i've had enough of that but um going forward and doing other things that has been useful as well but i would probably say I think I just got my grounding there, if that makes sense. I kind of learned how to look after animals every day professionally rather than just pets at home, if that makes sense. Well, there's definitely a very big difference between domesticated animals and exotics. You know, yeah, there, yeah. There, there's definitely a lot of special a special mm -hmm. set it requires a special set of skills, you know, even if you <laughs> That's are a just polite thing cleaning. to say. Yeah. Um, I know that you had a couple of great relationships with the sea lions at Blair yes. Drummond, specifically Lola. Um, yes. Did you feel the same kind of depth of relationship with the tigers? Or was Not that also something way. different? No. Can That's you explain something that? different. It's different again. Um, I felt more of a connection to Lola, who obviously, as I think you know yourself, Heather, she passed away yeah. two weeks ago, um, three weeks ago now. I think I probably had more of a connection to Lola in a way that I would have as akin to a, a pet at home, like mm -hmm. a dog. Mm -hmm. um, now, a lot of that came from her as much as it came from me. It's not that I was overly familiar with her for the sake of it. Um, and I don't know why that is the case. Um, it could be a combination of factors as it, you know, as in that it was the beginning of my career and I was learning. She was, you know, six months old when I started training her. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be that we kind of were in the same position at the same time, almost. Um, with the tigers, you don't have that, and I don't ever want to have that um, with with a tiger because stuff would still go wrong. I would say. Um, in what way? Well, I just don't think you could have that same contact with a tiger without it being dangerous. And also we're back to the realms of actually that putting across a message that other, to other people that isn't completely helpful. Um, mm. I think maybe, do you know what? A lot of it actually, as I've got older and grumpier and more cynical, I'm actually- <laughs> You were always that question way. <laughs> whether, well, I kind of was actually. Yeah. Well, I was, I, I, I'm kind of like beginning to question whether that was ever the right way of doing it, as enjoyable mm. as that was for me and hopefully mm -hmm. for Lola, um, mm -hmm. because I think she did get a lot out of that relationship. But- are we back into the realms of ego there? Are we back into the realms of pleasing what's best for ourselves at the detriment to what's best mm. for for training and, and animal husbandry? I don't know. I think it's something I'd probably it's keep a really, on the table. It's a really interesting debate. I mean, for me, I understand what you mean about maybe not wanting to have that same depth of relationship with the tiger. It comes down to trust. And sometimes when you become too trusting, you can forget that it's a tiger in front of you exactly. or you can forget yeah. that it's a killer whale in front of you and that's something we always had to be very careful of was yeah you trust them and you have a great relationship with them but you always remember they're a killer whale yeah um for us relationship was the number one most important thing that we could ever have because okay. it quite yeah. literally could save your life one day 
because, you know, even though we're not in the water anymore, we're still working free contact, you know, we're still right beside them. Um, So if anything ever was to go wrong, you want to have that relationship. So your whale knows you uh, and you also know your whale. But I do like the point that you made about showing the public so much Mm. of that, because I do think it kind of changes the perception that the public has about those animals. Uh, Because I think we see that kind of across the board with marine mammals, specifically dolphins. Um, The public definitely have this idea of dolphins or this magical, loving animal who has this incredible bond with humans, who will never do anything wrong, who would never do anything to hurt them. And I think that the reason the public thinks that is because everything they've seen in you know media in tv old movies was all about dolphins saving people or you know the the flipper ideal um so it's very very difficult to teach the public these animals can be dangerous because they just do not see them like that so i do under is is that kind of where you were going with that yeah i think you've actually kind of summed up what i was trying to explain um I also think it points as much to the power of media and mm-hmm. especially these days. I mean, we're sat, you know, talking to each other through social media yeah. where everything's instantly accessible. Everything is instantly, you know, it delivered to somebody's living room or kitchen whilst they're, you know, cooking, they'll be on YouTube or Instagram. So if that message isn't either delivered properly or if it's taken out of context, yes. the power for misinformation to spread is massive. And I think when it comes to animal safety, you know, you're talking about orcas for you, tigers for me, but even, you know, you see people on holiday that get out of a safari bus and wander towards an elephant because oh they've seen God. Dumbo and they think, I know it's, it's terrifying, but what, what happens is the media takes that out of context. And that's where I think there's a real, a real dangerous element slipping in that the person that then copies that video isn't, hazel mcbride who works with orcas it's just somebody who jumps in the water around a wild dolphin yeah and, and gets something, battered yeah so, something different yeah. is going to happen exactly for sure. so i think i think that kind of like yeah i'd say you summed it up absolutely with that. yeah it's it's i love that idea of how videos and images are so misconstrued in media and you see yeah, it like yeah. videos pop up onto like your homepage all the time and it's like oh watch this little boy do this with this animal and you do kind of yeah. watch it and go is that really what's happening or is someone absolutely. just put, put these words to this video no absolutely and the biggest example that sticks in my head from recent times was the whole there was a a, a fad of people going to thailand and tickling lorises because they look like they're laughing um oh, so they get a slow yeah. loris and start tickling them and actually the face that they make is a sign of extreme pain and discomfort. Um, mm-hmm. So you're back to the chimp smiling for the camera. The chimp's actually giving a warning. If, a, yeah. if a, most primates bearing their teeth, it's a warning or a fear symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's anthropomorphism meets modern media, I think. And yes. it, it terrifies me. And it yeah. terrifies me more when it comes to the species that you and me are talking about, although mm-hmm. it is dangerous on every level, I think. Yeah. I mean, anthropomorphism is something I definitely struggle with. <laughs> no, um, but you do it in a measured way. Yeah, so I, I do try. I do try. No, you do. It's fine. I do. Um, <laughs> no, I think I'm definitely anthropomorphic when I'm talking to other trainers. And, mm-hmm. and I think to an extent that's okay because other trainers have a better understanding of what you're actually trying to say. Um, yeah. We would definitely always be very careful with the general public to not be anthropomorphic and stick to behavior and science and and all of that, you know, different sort of stuff. But as um, a takeaway message for my listeners, what would you say were some of the best things that came out of you making a switch to working with terrestrials? There's a few, and there's a few across several areas, I think. Um, If I'm being absolutely blatantly, (laughs) you know, practical, I would say it opens up more opportunities for work. I think if you specialize so much in one thing, you then might actually, no, not just- I feel attacked. um, (laughs) No, I'm not trying, that's why I kind of stopped. I think think it opens up much more opportunities for people to go, oh, right, you've got a wider CV. Um, Yeah, you're completely right. I think, no, it's not a bad, I mean, you've, you've done what a lot of people would dream to do. 
I mean, what most people dream to do, and you've you've achieved it in ten years from start to finish. Oh, I I, I don't I don't regret absolutely it. Absolutely brilliant. But you're no. well, you shouldn't. No, no. But I mean, I think in terms of like scatter shot, if you work with more species, your CV can look more rounded. Yeah. The other thing I think is that actually, you know, working with a larger variety of species, keep the variety for yourself, keep it fresh. If you get to the point where you feel stagnant with any animal, you, you know, it's time to change. Um, yes. much in the same way that if you look at an enclosure and go that enclosure is brilliant and we don't need to change anything actually time to change yourself because mm -hmm. everything is working in this industry towards improving or it should be towards improving standards striving to improve animal welfare right the way from free contact orcas through to protect contact tigers through to meerkats um, it, it all comes into that the forwards progressive moving structure and if it's not, are we really talking again about the, the E word? Are we talking about egos getting in the way there? Where people yeah, are frightened to, yeah. you know, I, 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 that's what I'd say. Um, so the biggest change for me was, I think, opening my eyes to the wider zoo environment, because I think training and marine mammals can be a little bit down a, a rabbit hole, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. It's um, a very, very, it's a very small industry within yep. an already small industry yes and it's a very um specialist industry i yes. think and we, we talked i mean you talked at the start about the, the entire mentality being different with american show mm -hmm. and glitz and mm -hmm. um i think the wider zoo world is slightly more removed from that and it trickles along at a slower pace but it's it's not it's not wrong it's just different i think so yeah. I think that would be, that would be the takeaway message that don't expect one to be the same as the other. I would say. Yeah, I love that. Good thank fact. you, thank you so much for sharing. You know, all of your wisdom and You're all very of your welcome. experience. It's just a load of waffle, probably. But it's just <laughs> what I'm thinking. So. Well, yeah. it's a lot of waffle that I have enjoyed, and I am sure that all of my listeners have enjoyed it as well. So thank you so much for being a guest for me today. Sam. You're very welcome. Not a problem. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed it, then please do not forget to like, rate and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus. And don't forget to tag me at Dreaming with Hazel. And I will catch you guys next week.